When the Wright brothers made their historic first flight in 1903, they couldn't possibly have imagined how far the aircraft would progress in the following century alone. The Wright Flyer, as it was known, could be cruelly described as little more than a powered kite, but it would initiate a technical revolution that would shrink the world, allowing global travel in hours as opposed to months. It would also, of course, bring unimaginable destruction from the sky as the aircraft was tooled for war. This evolution from something of a curiosity to practical air power could only be achieved through experimentation, but for every experiment that would succeed, there were hundreds that failed. The big dreams of military planners worldwide that just fell short. These are their stories. Welcome to Wars of the World. In the 1930s, as countries the world over began rearming for war, fighter designs were going through something of a revolution. The biplanes of the previous two decades were quickly giving way to sleeker monoplanes. However, both types had their strengths and their flaws. Biplanes, for example, were much nimbler at slower speeds and altitudes and could take off in a much shorter distance, while monoplanes were significantly faster possessing less drag and also giving the pilot a greater field of vision, something vital for a fighter. Engineers the world over strived to create a plane that offered the advantages of the monoplane without sacrificing the advantages of the biplane, and one such engineer was the Soviet engineer Vladimir Shevchenko. His solution was simple in theory, essentially designing a biplane but equipped with a mechanism that lifted the lower wing into the upper one, not too unlike the X-Wing fighters of the Star Wars movies. Producing a model in 1939, Soviet authorities were sufficiently interested to order a prototype, dubbed the IS-1, of what was a polymorphic fighter, meaning it had more than one shape. The prototype IS-1 was completed in 1940 and first flew on November 6th of that year. The outer halves of the lower wings retracted horizontally into recesses in the undersurfaces of the upper wings, and the action was performed by a single vertically mounted pneumatic actuator in the fuselage. For the fighter role, the upper wing had provision for four machine guns, synchronized to fire through the propeller. Testing of the aircraft was promising, but the aircraft's speed in monoplane configuration was disappointing, thanks largely to the weight of the mechanism to retract the lower wings. Undeterred, a second prototype was proposed, which replaced the original's engine with a newer M88 engine, while the airframe received some moderate aerodynamic improvements. Sadly, however, the German invasion of the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, saw the Soviets redirect their efforts to more conventional types of aircraft, and the project was abandoned. Other countries have dabbled with polymorphic designs, but the IS-1 is the closest any came to an operational type. 
However, in the 1960s and 70s, aviation designers enjoyed a brief flirtation with variable geometry wings that afforded aircraft a much wider performance envelope than previous types that were often tailored to high or low speed flight. In many ways, these swing wing aircraft, such as the F-14 Tomcats, were the spiritual successors to the original polymorphic fighter. In the immediate post-war world, bombers remained the primary strategic weapon platform, and armed with atomic weapons, they could deliver devastating blows against enemy cities. In order to provide a useful nuclear deterrence, the range of bombers increased dramatically to where aircraft like the colossal Convair B-36 Peacemaker were truly capable of intercontinental flight. But this presented a problem for the bomber crews, there simply weren't any escort fighters with sufficient range to escort them to their targets and back, and as World War II proved, this could spell disaster for the bomber force. Thus, the USAF trialed a novel solution, parasite fighters. These would be fighter aircraft that would latch onto the bombers in some way, and use them to piggyback to and from the target area, only separating when they were attacked by enemy fighters. It was not a new concept exactly, with similar proposals and even some testing being carried out by several countries before the end of World War II, and with the US even developing a dedicated parasite fighter in the McDonnell XF-85 Goblin. But now there were bombs capable of destroying countries, there was a real sense of urgency to try it out. Under Project Tiptoe, Experiments were carried out involving a modified Boeing B-29 Superfortress, having two Republic F-84D Thunderjets hook up to the bomber's wings, essentially becoming extensions of the wingtips. The F-84s then powered down their engines to conserve their fuel, although the pilots still had to control their aircraft in unison with the bomber pilot's movements, making this perhaps the ultimate demonstration of formation flying. As the test program continued, an automatic flight control system was designed that would alleviate the need for fighter pilots to maintain control. But sadly, this would lead to disaster, when on April 24th, 1953, in New York State, an F-84 immediately flipped over onto the wing of the B-29 after activating the automatic controls, causing both to crash with the loss of all five of the bomber crew and the F-84 pilot. Despite this setback, research into attaching wingtip fighters continued, with the B-29 being superseded by the awe-inspiring B-36 in service. Naturally, it only made sense to trial this goliath of a bomber with its own detachable fighters. Several hookups were successfully made under Project TomTom, but turbulence from the B-36's massive wings almost led to another disaster, when on September 23rd, 1956, a Republic RF-84F Thunderflash was torn away from the bomber's wingtip. Although thankfully this time, both aircraft managed to land safely. Nevertheless, this was the death knell for the concept, as it was seen as simply far too dangerous. 
However, a promising alternative was already under development, as was a new operational concept whereby the B-36 would instead carry fast-strike fighters armed with small nuclear bombs to a target area, far away from their base. The parasites would then separate and attack their targets using their small size and high speed to evade enemy defenses that would decimate a big bomber like the B-36. Having destroyed their targets, the parasite fighters would return to their motherships to be carried home. Dubbed FICON, short for Fighter Conveyor, a B-36 was modified with a special trapeze mechanism in the bomb bay to capture the F-84. During the flight, the Parasite F-84 would be carried semi-recessed in the bomb bay, which allowed the pilot to actually leave the fighter, unlike the tiptoe method. Unfortunately, this arrangement would also increase the drag on the bomber, reducing its range by up to 10%. The first successful in-flight hookup took place on January 9th, 1952, and over the coming years, the full envelope of such operations were explored. The older model F-84s were eventually replaced by newer and more capable Republic F-84F Thunderstreaks, which came with a dedicated reconnaissance variant, which prompted the USAF to tailor the project more towards the intelligence-gathering role. Having ordered 10 reconnaissance-oriented RB-36Ds to be modified as motherships, operational FICON duties were undertaken by the 99th Strategic Reconnaissance Wing at Fairchild Air Force in Washington. Under operational conditions, pilots found the hookup process extremely challenging, and several aircraft were damaged during the process. By April of 1956, the USAF had given up on the concept, and the last FICON flight took place on April 27th. There were numerous similar proposals put forward in several air forces since the 50s, but all have remained fanciful dreams. The advent of heavy fighters with long range, coupled with the revolution in air-to-air refueling, rendered the concept of having a mothership aircraft unnecessary. Furthermore, from the late 1950s onwards, even the bomber escort role's importance diminished as intercontinental ballistic missiles began to replace bombers as the primary means of delivering nuclear Armageddon. The Parasite Fighter is a story of a good idea for the 40s that just wasn't needed anymore by the time it finally got going in the 1950s. Consider a modern combat aircraft, such as the Boeing FA-18E Super Hornet or the Eurofighter Typhoon, with their bewildering array of weaponry slung underneath their wings. These aircraft are capable of a wide array of missions with various types of weapons, but one thing all those weapons have in common is that they are significantly smaller than their launch aircraft. Now consider the German missile project for comparison. At first glance, you may think this is another parasite fighter concept, or that the small fighter mounted on top of the bomber is the missile, but no. In fact, the bomber is itself a giant missile, with the pilot flying it to its target in the fighter before separating after beginning the attack. The German missile, or Mistletoe project, was conceived initially to aid the deployment of troop-carrying gliders, but quickly it was realized they could be employed in a more aggressive role. 
replacing the gliders with crewless bombers. With the crew compartment being stuffed with explosive charges weighing nearly two tons, the Germans believed the missile project would bestow upon them a war-winning weapon of extraordinary power. With the shaped charge focusing the explosive energy forward onto the target, it was expected the missile could penetrate up to seven meters of reinforced concrete, or cut in half the biggest battleships. The missile pilots flying in the fighter would identify a target, and then, at a range of around three kilometers, line up the two aircraft and enter into a 30-degree dive. With what was now essentially a massive air-to-surface missile locked onto the target, the pilot would separate his fighter and escape, leaving the bomber to fly on to the destructive end of what was its one and only ever flight. Work on the projects began in 1942, based on a proposal by Siegfried Holzbauer, an engineer working at the famed Junkers Aircraft Company. Tests were encouraging, and by the time Allies landed on the Normandy beaches, the Luftwaffe were ready to unleash the new weapon on the ships supporting the beachhead. It must have come as something of a shock to the Allied troops to apparently witness German bomber crews conducting suicide attacks, being unaware that nobody was on board. However, despite German confidence in this new Wunderwaffe, the results were disappointing. Allied air superiority was by this time so great that the lumbering bombers turned missiles were fell upon by Spitfires and Mustangs in droves, and of those that did survive their flight, they seldom hit their target. 250 missiles were deployed during the war, but they had little impact, and the units operating them suffered heavy losses. There was no exact combination of aircraft used, with various bombers and fighters being employed for missile operations, and by the end of the war, there were even jet-powered versions proposed, but these never came to fruition. Nazi Germany would fall, and the weapon they thought might have saved them ultimately came to nothing. Like so many of the tools of warfare militaries take for granted today, the helicopter got its start in World War II, albeit briefly. Initially seen as little more than a flying jeep, within a decade, the technology had advanced to the point where the helicopter was quickly becoming an integral part of military operations the world over, and as well as its logistical role, it was soon adopting more aggressive ones too. The US Army recognized early in the aircraft's use that the versatility of a helicopter to military planners was offset by their vulnerability to ground fire, particularly as they landed troops. Door gunners were added as a stopgap, but this being deemed inadequate, the US Army then began modifying their early model UH-1 helicopters, known universally as the Huey, to carry heavier armament, such as rockets and grenade launchers, to operate in a dedicated gunship role. However, as the Hueys were getting embroiled in the combat role in Vietnam, plans were being formulated for an even more deadly helicopter. Just as iconic as the Huey was the CH-47 Chinook heavy lift helicopter, designed to carry several times the number of troops and equipment as the smaller type. Some more aggressive commanders soon began to realize that the Chinook's heavy lifting ability could be used to carry heavy weapons in the fire support role, 
1965, Boeing Vertol began remanufacturing four Chinooks to the ACH-47A standard. The ACH-47A had the potential for bringing incredible firepower to a landing zone that could be surrounded by enemy troops, as well as then supporting the US troops as they advanced outward. The armament's loadout reads like a shopping list of death. Five machine guns, two M24A1 20mm cannons, two M18A1 miniguns, two 19-tube 7.25-inch rocket launchers, a single chin-mounted 40mm automatic grenade launcher. And if all that wasn't enough, the rear and side doors could be removed for additional machine guns and other weapons as needed. Recognizing that the Chinook would take a lot of enemy fire, the helicopters received significant armor upgrades to protect its eight-man crew. But these combined with heavy weapon loads were too much for even the Chinook, and more powerful engines had to be fitted to counteract the penalty on performance. Dubbed the Armored or Armed Chinook, the new aircraft was nicknamed by its crew as the Guns A Go Go, and combat trials were undertaken in Vietnam in 1966. By all accounts, the three deployed aircraft performed well in combat, occupying a place somewhere between the armed Hueys and fixed-wing AC-47 gunships. However, misfortune seemed to dog the program. One aircraft was damaged beyond repair in a freak ground collision with a regular CH-47, and so in order for the program not to lose any momentum, the evaluation aircraft was deployed from the US. Within nine months, that aircraft would also be lost when its 20mm cannon shook loose while firing and then rotated upwards, sending shells into the aircraft's rotors, thus effectively shooting itself down and killing all eight men on board in the process. Another nine months after this, the two remaining armed Chinooks took heavy fire, forcing one of them to have to land unpowered. The other aircraft laid down suppressing fire while rescuing the crew members before escaping the scene. Efforts to recover the valuable downed Chinook were thwarted when it was destroyed by enemy mortar fire. Now with just one aircraft remaining, it was decided to scrap the program. It was not just the loss of three aircraft that inevitably scuppered the ACH-47 project. First, we now had the AH-1 Huey Cobra, the world's first dedicated attack helicopter, which was fast, heavily armed and armored, and with a significantly smaller profile, and so was much more difficult to target and hit from the ground. Secondly, the logistics situation in Vietnam was such that Chinooks were worth their hefty weight in gold to commanders, who needed large amounts of supplies to be moved to their men quickly, many of whom were often surrounded by dense jungle, crawling with enemy troops, where resupply from anywhere but the air was impossible. As such, the US Army were reluctant to release any more airframes for conversions into gunships. Chinooks actually still fly today and are often heavily armed for defending themselves, but they have never come close to the incredible firepower of the ACH-47. By the 1960s, the Cold War was in full swing and on both sides of the Iron Curtain, there was a very credible fear that on day one of any future war, 
airfields would be destroyed within the first 24 hours, denying the advantages of military air power in repelling the enemy. There was therefore an obsession with aircraft capable of VTOL, vertical takeoff and landing. These aircraft would not need runways and could instead take off and land from any flat surface like a helicopter, but then transition into a fast jet once airborne. Many aircraft designs were trialed in an effort to achieve this with mixed results. In the US, experiments were carried out with fitting rocket boosters onto F-100 Super Sabres and launching them like missiles, although this still left the problem of where they were going to land. The Ryan X-13 trialed the feasibility of landing an aircraft on its tail, while in France, the Dassault company built a variant of its famed Mirage fighter that, as well as having its main engine for forward flight, featured eight vertically mounted lift jets for VTOL. This aircraft consumed so much fuel that its flight time was seldom more than 10 minutes long, and could come to an abrupt end if just one of its lift jets failed. It would not be until the arrival of the British Hawker Siddeley Harrier that practical VTOL was achieved, and the aircraft, known universally as the Jump Jet, entered service with the RAF in 1969 and with the US Marine Corps in 1971. Key to the aircraft's ability to take off and land vertically was its unique Rolls-Royce Pegasus engine, which instead of sending the thrust out of a single exhaust, splits it between four rotating nozzles arranged around the aircraft's center of gravity. When VTOL was needed, the nozzles rotated downwards, but once airborne, they would rotate to the rear for forward thrust. But as well as freeing up the need for the aircraft to operate from runways, the Harrier's VTOL ability also presented a wide array of possible options for their use in a naval environment. By the 1970s, carrier-based aviation had become so complex and costly that less than a handful of nations could afford to continue operating them. Now, however, the Harrier offered that possibility, and in theory, even a frigate could carry a fighter aircraft operating from its helicopter deck. This raised the possibility that new warships could be built that were part cruiser, part Harrier carrier, giving a Navy air power at a fraction of the cost of an aircraft carrier. There was even a flirtation with the idea of building Harrier carrying submarines, although this obviously never came to fruition. Engineers in the UK seized upon the Harrier's naval possibilities and conceived of the Skyhook system, which was designed to make Harrier operations from such warships more efficient and safer. The concept employed the use of cranes affixed to the rear of a warship, or even on board a requisitioned cargo ship, which would snare the Harriers as they hovered underneath them and then lower them down onto the flight deck. Alternatively, the crane could simply refuel the Harriers, allowing them to conduct extended missions. Another advantage that was quickly realized was that with the Skyhook crane, the Harriers could also be launched and recovered in even the roughest seas, where the deck would be swaying from side to side thanks to computers that would keep the grappling equipment perfectly horizontal. Consequently, the system offered advantages over even conventional aircraft carriers, which still require relatively calm weather to operate their aircraft safely. It was also a much faster way of getting a plane in the air than launching using a catapult. Hoping to fully exploit the potential of this new system, 
British Aerospace developed a prototype for trial purposes, and testing involved the company's two-seat Harrier, appropriately registered as GVTOL. Trials proved the concept was feasible, and British Aerospace tried to attract as much attention as possible for it, but the British government was simply not interested, nor were other nations, mostly because of the Harrier itself. Despite its superlative performance in the Falklands War of 1982, the Harrier was slow and a comparatively light aircraft compared to more conventional types. As such, the project quietly fizzled out and is left as one of the truly great what-if stories of aviation. And there you have stories of aircraft that might have changed the world. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.